Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name is Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I talk to Marty McLeod about using secondary keywords. So this is fairly detailed. This is deep into the weeds on keyword research. So if that sounds exciting to you, congratulations. You're a weird person, just like me and uh, Marty and a bunch of other folks that find that kind of thing interesting. If it sounds boring, then um, it may be, you know, the whole episode may be boring. I'll be honest with you. But if you're interested in that kind of shit, this is going to be right down your alley. So this topic was suggested to me by Marty. Um, He actually wrote a fine uh, guest post on my site, Niche Site Project. I'll link that in the show notes. So if you want to get a little bit more detail, if you want to see some of the images and and other information that Marty included in a well thought out, uh, you know, very digestible, very actionable kind of guest post, check that out. You can hear the discussion here today. We go back and forth. And, uh, you know, sometimes with these topics, it's a little bit difficult to convey our ideas just through uh, discussion. We do our best, of course, and a lot of it is uh, like on my shoulders to ask the right questions, which is hard sometimes. So I do my best, and Marty obviously does a great job um, answering the questions. By the way, in this episode, um, I'm going to do sort of a greatest hits kind of thing. So after our discussion about secondary keywords and using them and that sort of thing, I'm going to put the initial interview that I did with Marty way back in the day from his first appearance on The Doug Show. And I'm not 100% sure which episode number this is going to be. It's probably going to be in the 70s, which is kind of insane since I started the podcast in 2019. So, and and we're not even through 2019 yet, and we've already hit 70 episodes. So I want to thank everyone for their support. And I know some folks have been like telling your friends about it, and that's great. Uh, Some people send in emails. That's great too. You ask questions. Sometimes you give me helpful, uh, constructive criticism, uh, which is appreciated. I know sometimes people are like, ah, you know what? I don't want to complain about, you know, stuff, but I do have a tip for you. And I take, you know, I take all feedback. Some of it is very good. Some of it isn't as good, but you know, I can always learn and I'm always trying to improve. But anyway, the point is I'm going to put a sort of greatest hits interview at the end. It's actually one of the most popular uh, interviews that I've done and it happens to be with Marty. So thanks a lot, Marty, for taking the time and being a great mentor out there in the Niche Site Project community. Thanks, man. So let's hear from Marty now and stay tuned after we finish our discussion for the Greatest Hits interview when Marty first hit $500 per month. Hey, what's going on? Doug Cunnington here, and I'm sitting with Marty McLeod again. How are you? I'm good. So you've been on a few episodes, quite a few now, so I appreciate all your time. And for the people that don't know you, can you give just a quick little short intro? Yes. So I've been uh, working on my affiliate sites, started with one as I was a student of Doug Cunnington's uh, five-figure niche site course. I believe it was back in mid-2017, if I'm not mistaken. And I've just been steadily working up, cranking along ever since. And I'm announcing a pretty good amount of success. 
Cool. And a very modest and a helpful dude, uh, Marty is. So he's making about 3K per month. We can, we can mention that. And he's been doing it pretty consistently here. So the last three months or so, congratulations on that. Thanks. And I haven't met you yet, but I'm hoping next time I get out yeah. to Atlanta, we could do a little meetup. So we're yeah, really like, I haven't been back in like a couple of years or so and it was super busy um, before, but you're in the Atlanta area just in right. general. How long how yeah. many years have you been out there? Uh, I think since 2005, I used to live in Norcross before I moved over to uh close to where I am now, which is in the Alpharetta area, just outside of Atlanta. Okay. We're, we're in, uh, we're in Norcross, if you could mention, cause I used to live yeah. like, down in the Dunwoody oh. zone and I was in Norcross all the time. Oh, okay. I was actually, uh, originally I was off somewhere off Singleton road, not too far from Jimmy Carter Boulevard. Uh, and then I went to Duluth and then ended up over in Roswell, then in Alpharetta. Oh man, we were probably sitting in traffic at the same time. It's all <laughs> yes. this, all the same spots. So, yeah, I did you exactly. move closer to like the office? Is yeah, that- exactly. Kind of had to because it's just I hate I hate commuting, I hate hassle. I really oh do. yeah, man. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Like back, um, back when I guess it was co-oping, but I I was living at home because I was in college. But I was driving from Lawrenceville to Alpharetta, if you can imagine. Right? Yeah, did, that's not. Yeah. There's like no good way. It's like two lane roads or like get on yeah. the connector. I'm sure people are like, guys, we don't care about the traffic <laughs> in Atlanta. <laughs> so the point of today is we're going to talk about secondary keywords. And Marty, can you sort of like introduce the topic for folks that are unfamiliar with secondary keywords? Yeah. So when you decide to write a post for your affiliate site, you're typically what you do is you find a keyword or it's been sometimes you call it a primary keyword or focus keyword or basically it just means the main keyword you're targeting to write a post for people searching for and hopefully land on your page post uh secondary are the additional keywords that posts can rank for and the idea here is that we purposely think about that ahead of time when we're creating the post rather than just getting additional keywords that we rank for completely by accident we actually say from the beginning, hey, why don't I try to optimize or, or that is, make the use of more keywords in this post while I'm writing this? Yeah. Cool. And yeah, I was going to say, like, kind of what happens, like, if you just find a keyword, you write the post, like, you'll potentially, let's say things work out, you rank for the keyword that you're intending to rank for, but you will also rank for, you know, uh, several dozens, maybe hundreds, or even yeah. thousands of other secondary keywords that you're not yep. even intending on ranking for. So you're suggesting, Marty, that if you think about it ahead of time and you know these other related keywords, go ahead and put them in there. Go ahead yep. and optimize for those. Exactly. Got it. And do you, I guess, do you have any specific examples or can you share any sort of like, a, I don't know, like a case study that you have observed on your own site? Yeah, uh, let's see. What well, I won't use the actual product names because I, I, I tend to be sure. keep that on a secret. Uh, well, listen, why don't we just use the example of hair dryers? So let's say I have, uh, the, what are the best hair dryers under $50? As opposed to focus keyword, primary keyword. I can find some other keywords that are very relevant that I can create content for and hopefully rank for and it'll be stuff what you typically find stuff like how does a hairdryer work uh can i can you take a hairdryer with you it sounds like dumb stuff but there's a lot of people searching just for just basic things you know 
uh, how many watts does a hairdryer use? All of that stuff is stuff that you can add to add value to the post that you can potentially rank for, as well as actually add real stuff that people actually want to read. And, and that's instead of having to have a super thin post where all you have is some products that you get to your product reviews and pros and cons and that's it, you know, but you, it, it, there's several good reasons why you should do that. And when you do that and you actually try to do a good job of, of writing content, it, it looks like you really mean well and people appreciate it. Gotcha. You know? And they also tend to spend more time on the page too. You know? Okay. And is it safe to assume like if you put in say like the, the root keyword, like hair dryer, um, the secondary keywords will always have a smaller search volume. Yeah. That, that does most of almost always. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is there any sort of guide on like what search volumes are worthwhile or not worthwhile or anything like that? You know, I have not really, well, I do, if you're going to have some and they seem very similar and you have it, your, your list of potential keywords or some at the bottom in terms of volume, some at the top, I do try to take the ones with the highest volume first. Uh, I don't make that, a, I don't make that primary criteria though. I make what's useful and most relevant usually in my first criteria, you know? Okay. So, and how do you sort through such a list? Let's say yeah. you have several hundred keywords. Like what do you do with them? Yeah, I think about what I look, I go, I just quickly, and it actually doesn't take me very long. I go through there in my, my spreadsheet and I highlight the cells where I find something that's relevant and it would make sense to write about. And that people uh, would say, okay, this is, this, this fits in this topic. I don't force, I'm not stuffing any keywords. You don't do that. And even if it's something that's worded in a weird way, like some keywords will have bad English or the syntax is weird. I'll keep it. I'll fix it as I go. I'll put that to the side. I still I make a note of that, but mainly just does this make sense to use in here? And if I answer this question, will it be helpful and add value? I just I just go through, go down the whole list. I, I find a bunch of them, and right when I start writing, I, I go through and pick them out of individually. So you might be four or five that ultimately end up using maybe six in some cases. You know. Okay. And then <laughs> how do you actually like put them into your article? Yeah, I, I drop them. I take a copy of them from the spreadsheet and drop them into the, the editor and I put them there and I start my content pro- writing process. And when I get to content section where it makes sense to flow into that topic, I'll put it in there. If I need to, I clean up the actual keyword phrasing. And usually I, I tend to use those, those, those secondary keywords in H2 subtitles. Okay. Exactly. And I just kind of do that as I go. Okay, cool. So, by putting it in the like a, as a subheading, you're yeah. sort of indicating that like, hey, this is kind of an important section. Like right. this section is about yep. that topic. Yep, exactly. Got it. Okay, cool. And how do you determine whether or not you should put the secondary <laughs> keyword in the post or like make a second article? It tends to be that if a lot of it is just using your best judgment, it's it tends to be like some things you'd be really pushing it to try to write a whole post about some things are like really, really have really tiny short answers, but I can, I can write one to two paragraphs about those. And that's okay. If it's within an, another post, but they wouldn't really fit. It wouldn't make sense to use them in their own post. That's usually how I, I do it. You know? Okay, cool. Cool. That, that totally makes sense. So if maybe someone finds a, a keyword and they were thinking, 
oh, I'm going to write a whole post about it. And then when they look into it, they realize there's not enough information yeah, to put in there. Yeah. Maybe they could pull it into like oh. the parent post, we'll call exactly. it. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Very good. Very good. And let's see, as far as like, I guess, how many times you use the secondary keyword? Are you, So you have a subheading. Are you also putting uh, like that full text into the article, like in the body of the paragraph? Yeah, I, I, I try to do that as much as possible. In some cases, I have to tweak it a little bit um, so that it doesn't look like, like it's unnatural English. You, you don't want to do that. I, I see some sites out there doing that, and they're usually poor quality sites. And they, they try to force it in to be an exact match of what the original keyword, search keyword term is. I don't do that. I tweak it a little bit to correct the English. Uh, sometimes you can phrase it as a question, as in, like someone was asking, uh, you know, uh, what, uh, who, who uses hair dryers? You know, I, I write it as, as if someone was asking themselves and then I answer that. You know, I think about which way it looks, looks best. If I was reading, if I was reading it as a stranger, what, what way looks best to me? Mm-hmm. You know? Cool. And so you're using like some copywriting ideas where like, you know, when someone's going through it, you want to like have them identify as like the person or something like that as they're reading it. And they're like, oh yeah, I am wondering who uses a hairdryer. I am because I don't use a hairdryer. I don't need to, you know, it's one of the huge advantages I have. I save all this time during the day. How long does it take you to dry your hair, for example? Oh, not that long. I tell <laughs> But I hate lots of people love hairdryer so i know they have the server good, <laughs> good purpose. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah no i mean i could always like no matter the topic i could somehow talk about myself so even if i'm making fun of my bald head so all right cool now there is such a thing called lsi keywords are you familiar with those marty uh latent semantic indexing i believe yeah a, do, a little bit can you can you talk about them a little bit do you much, know much about uh them? not terribly well versed but my understanding is that means that uh google can interpret some the meat the intention intent and in, uh meaning of something even if it's not identical to the way something else is phrased like they may be similar in meaning but not necessarily written the same it can correct me if i if I'm making an error. <laughs> no, you know what? I didn't even look. I'm totally unprepared. So um, I I didn't look it up. I know it's a thing. I know what it stands for. And um, well, it, whatever you said is useful. People could look this up. But I was going to say there are tools that could help you do it. There oh, are okay. many, many tools out there. And you, you mentioned earlier, like maybe it was even before we were recording, um, Page Optimizer Pro. Pop yeah. people refer to it. Kyle Roof um, yeah. is the creator of that. So for the secondary keyword stuff, Page Optimizer Pro is probably pretty helpful, right? Yeah, yeah. That's I I, I know that there's some other tools too that I, I can't remember the names of them. Um, I you know one thing you can do actually though is just is manually put it in Google and see how it treats it, and you'll see what it thinks is the same has the same relevance meaning, and then you can see other ideas too. Indeed. Yep. And I think some of the power, um, in like page optimizer pro is like, it will tell you like other keywords that you potentially could put into the article that will help it rank for more, um, keywords Mm -hmm. in general, potentially even boost like the relevancy for the terms it's already ranking for. And 
like just nailing the on page. Like that's the whole idea with page optimizer pro. And this is, you know, a, um, like the process that we described that you described here, Marty is sort of like the manual way to do it with like, a list of keywords and you have some knowledge about like if it's useful, you have some understanding obviously on the keyword competition and uh, just what people are looking for. But like page optimizer pro can sort of like break it down and tell you like use this keyword, um, you know, X number of times or use similar keyword stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, in general, if people are, like really curious this gets deep into the weeds by the way by the way this is why i rarely yeah. talk about lsi um because it, it's going down to a level where you're like looking at s- statistics you're finding like different ways to rephrase uh, the content and for most people like they're just struggling to get content published like yeah. find a writer and like get it published so i usually don't go into the depth of like what we're getting into now so plus i don't even know what LSI is apparently. <laughs> so, all right. Do you like how I did that? I was like, you know, LSI and then I quizzed you, made you say it. That's I didn't right. even know what it was, you know? That's right. Keep me yeah. on my toes. Yeah. Absolutely. Now we know what we're talking about guys, guys and gals. So, okay, cool. So from, uh, like we went through generally like the most of the process. So you have a right. bunch of keywords, like any other tips, um, as far as like selecting them or implementing this in a way that is natural without keyword stuffing. Yeah. I just would say that, uh, <clears throat> don't pick them on the basis of what you want to put in there. Pick, pick it on the base of what is both, useful and makes sense to put in there. And if somebody was reading it, they would say, okay, this is cool. Now I'll learn about this when I read this. AKA it's natural. Your intent, your reason for putting it in there is natural and it appears natural. And also again, uh, you're not going to shoehorn a keyword in exactly as it is, because a lot of them, if some crazy reason they're misspelled or the English grammar is wrong or something crazy, just fix that because usually a lot of times Google can interpret the correct meaning, even if it's not spelled exactly the right way or the phrasing. The original phrasing is off and you correct it to look correct in English. It's okay. You know, cool. don't, don't, don't sweat that. Yep. And I, I was going to say, actually, people ask that all the time. Hey, I found a great keyword, but it's misspelled and the grammar is wrong. Like, should I yep. go for it? The answer is no. Like, just go for the right term. Like, you yeah. didn't find anything special. Google knows how to yeah, spell yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Google can figure out, like, that you actually meant <clears throat> something else. So they will give you those results spelled correctly. They're trying to help you out. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, everyone check out this uh, specific post. I'll put a link in the uh, description. It goes through like the step-by-step process that Marty explained uh, like verbally here. And you could actually like see some screenshots and some other details that Marty provides. Very helpful. So thanks a lot, Marty. Appreciate your time as always. My pleasure. Thanks again to Marty. Definitely appreciate the time. And don't forget, check out the blog post that Marty wrote over at Niche Site Project to get a little bit more detail and context around using secondary keywords. Coming up in just a second here, we're going to hear from uh, Marty. And this interview, I think we recorded it in like 2018, like the middle of 2018. 
And it was uh, like the second episode of The Doug Show. All right, so pretty cool to go back in the archives. And I guess we have enough episodes where I can comfortably dip into the archive and play a greatest hits for folks that want a little bit more. The truth is, things aren't going to be easy. You're going to do make mistakes. And being successful means saying, okay, well, if this isn't working and I did something wrong, well, then I'll try something else. Because other people obviously can do it. And if that's true, you can too. As I mentioned, Marty is a student in the Five Figure Niche Site course. So he has access to the framework and all the -the over-the-shoulder lessons and sort of the mindset that you need to have if you're starting out building a site. If you're not a member of the course, that is okay. In fact, it takes some time to uh, you know, make such an investment and commit the time to it. But if you're just looking to get an idea and maybe get a hand, your hands on some of the templates and the process, I'll put a link in the show notes or you can go to nichesiteproject.com, click the green uh, button, and then you could enter your name and email address and you'll be able to get access to all that stuff. There's even like a 90-page PDF that kind of walks you through the entire process. It's at a higher level than the course, but it's enough to get you started on the right track. Hey, what's up? I'm Doug Cunnington. I'm sitting with my friend Marty. How are you doing today? Really good, Doug. I'm really flattered to be here. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you. It's uh, my pleasure to speak with you. You are a student from Five Figure Niche Site, so I'm happy to, uh, you know, bring you out and like show you off. So let's get to the results like real quick right here. So can you share sure. your, you know, recent earnings and traffic over you know the past couple months or so? Right. So when I checked this morning, my in Amazon, I looked to my is given per thirty days for the last month. Thirty days was just about like I think it's five hundred thirty dollars in fees. I've still got more coming because it's not all paid yet. But uh, and the traffic is, uh, it's getting closer, just under seven thousand visitors a month, a month now. So it's like sixty eight hundred or something right now. All right. Yeah. Cool. And how old's the site? So it's right at a year. Uh, so as of June, that made a year since I started a course. Yep. Awesome. Well, congratulations. I know to work on any project for a full year is like a it's a pretty long time, so it's an accomplishment all by itself. And I know in the last, you know, really in the last 30 days, like it's sort of been a milestone for you. So yeah, can definitely. you just, can you tell us a little bit about that and like what it means to you? Oh yeah. You know, and actually I even had the original post-it note where I wrote down my goal that you suggested, you know, my goal was pretty uh, moderate, pretty modest. I think I make $500 a month uh, <clears throat> and I didn't even expect for us to be talking about me having achieved that goal right now, I thought it would take even more time. But just this last week, uh, I happened to log into my Amazon affiliate fees account, you know, and uh, lo and behold, I couldn't believe it. There it was. It it, it, it actually exceeded $500. And it, it's just kind of hard to describe. It was just, it's like when you make your very first sale, but multiply that times 10. And it, I had to almost actually just stop for a minute because I didn't expect it, but it felt so warm inside and it really just, wow. I was, it's just like, uh, 
it's hard to describe, to be honest with you. It's just like a, like a, like a wonderful surprise that makes you just feel good for all the hard work you've put in and so forth. Excellent. Well, and you have put in a lot of hard work. Um, we'll get into a lot of the details of the site and well, not too many of the details, but your process of going through it before we get there though, what's your background? What do you do for your day job, education, all that kind of stuff? Right. So actually by day, my day job, I'm an electrical engineer and I live and work here in Georgia, United States. And, uh, actually we've spoken before about, I work where you used to work a long time ago. (laughs) So, uh, or in the same area, excuse me. Uh, my background is similar to that before I got out of Auburn, University, I was doing electronics and other things like that. Uh, periodically, while working at jobs before, uh, just in general, I I just all, I had seen other guys online who were like living a good life and they're they're able to travel and they're making money online. It just blew me away because I always had this strange feeling inside that the everyday routine that there should be more to life possible than that and. I can remember some very specific moments in which it just bothered me that I would have to do the same routine the rest of my life. Yeah. And that's why I was interested in this topic of affiliate marketing and how I found you. Cool. And do you remember when you first heard about like niche sites or affiliate marketing or anything like that? Uh, I, gosh, um, I've been through so much stuff looking at so many things. I do remember, I'm pretty sure I don't remember the very first time I do remember having been on those sites because I bought a pair of earphone headphones one time. And I think that was one of my first introductions. And it over the time, more websites I was on, it became obvious that they were I saw the uh, disclaimer about being an affiliate site, an Amazon site. And then when I read more about it, that's how I found you. And I understood more about what it actually was. Hopefully that explains a little bit more. Yeah, so it sounds like a couple, couple few years or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And did, had you built like other sites in the past, just in general? or? Yes, I did, actually. I Before I knew about you, I knew what a legitimate course was. I, I built a website related to a men's health supplement, and I started off on the wrong foot, and there was no way I was going to succeed. And that was very discouraging, but I actually learned quite a bit from that. Cool. Yeah, so it, it flopped and it, it didn't last long. All right, and so you, you found me not too long ago. You got the right. five figure niche site course like a year ago. Has there yes. been any, or have there been other influences? Who are some other people that you follow and you know got value from? Oh, definitely. Uh, so I, I there, uh, there's a guy who got, goes by the name of Kyle Trouble. He's a he's not an Amazon affiliate marker, but he's a really smart guy who's actually giving me some helpful information about how I write my content and my links and just some general stuff as well as I learned quite a bit from uh, some of the SEO articles and videos and webinars from companies like uh, SEM Rush and Ahrefs, uh, Stuart Walker, Niche Hacks, uh, Human Proof Designs, especially them. They're, they've had some great info and I know you know them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like that, uh, tend to give you share a lot of real actionable information that helps beginners. That's, that's been a big influence on me too. Cool. And we'll, we'll link up all this stuff in the description. And I think that's key. You can sort of tell like after you see enough information, you could tell the people that are 
practicing and like they're practitioners of whatever, you know, craft they're, yeah. they're talking about versus people <clears throat> that are just regurgitating. It's very easy to get into, you know, the habit of like regurgitating content from other sources. And, yep. you know, if you're just, you know, if you're doing internet marketing, you're just getting started. Sometimes you do have to like reference other case studies, but it becomes really clear when people just don't know what they're talking about. So, <laughs> That's true. Yes. Very cool. So as far as like finding a niche, so it sounds like you've, you've had a variety of sources. Do you have any like recommendations yes. for maybe beginners who haven't picked a niche or maybe they're not sure if the niche that they're thinking of is a good profitable one? Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, I have several thoughts on that because that's so critical, uh, especially given how many how much competition there is out there these days. Um, I would say don't always look at just the first things that pop into your head because probably everybody else is too. So you can uh, try to think sideways, like uh, instead of thinking about toasters, thinking about some other kind of specialty item that's similar, but there maybe there's an opportunity with something else related to your first idea. Uh, But also over time I've learned that because of how much time and money you're going to invest, uh, which not it's not necessarily a lot of money, but the amount of time and effort, those are resources too. It would people would do well to buy in just an hour of time from from you, for example, to get a, a second opinion before they really go all in, because you're it, it's hard to put a price on somebody else's experience and their perspective on how they can, sh- you know, say, hey, this is not a good idea, or yeah, you know what, I have a good feeling all the things line up right, you should do this because that can save people in an enormous amount of grief and possibly even trying to climb a mountain they shouldn't climb, you know, one right. way of putting it. And that's a really good point. Um, someone that I'm coaching right now, they hired me for a one-off, um, you know, just hour to analyze and audit their site. And unfortunately, they've been spending a lot of time and money on it over the last six months. And if they just would have met with me first, they would have saved, you know, thousands of dollars and it's expensive to hire me for an hour, but it's cheaper than if you work on something um, for six months. So it's really, really key to, I guess, understand that maybe it's an investment to hear that you've made a bad decision before you invest like so much more time. And then you have the sunk cost fallacy where, you know, if you're in, you're like, well, I better just keep going. And then you may be just, yes, it's never going to work out. So very good point. Well, that said, um, are there any mistakes that you made, um, along the way in your journey that maybe we can learn from your mistakes so we don't make them? Yeah, I'm sure there's a whole list, but I'll, I'll try to cut it down to the, uh, the biggest ones. So I am guilty when I started. I was like a lot of people. I got discouraged. And there were periods of time where I let this, the site sit and didn't keep putting in effort in building uh, content and links. Uh, so I was also at the same time, I, I was guilty of the what people call shiny object syndrome, where the next little thing that you might read about, hey, I think I'll try this. And I dipped my toes into other things and that ended up actually hurting my progress for a couple, just a few months, like maybe roughly two months or so. And that's a terrible feeling. So I would say don't do any of that. Stay focused. 
keep working on it. Even when you're discouraged, you know, take a, just take a day if you're in a bad mood and then come back the next day and get back on track and stay focused. Look at, you know, also, uh, <clears throat> when I started off, my content was weak and that was a really bad idea. I wasn't really putting my heart into it. And so my content wasn't long enough. It also wasn't as good of a quality if I, as if I really, as I really could have done. So what that meant was when I got my act together later, I had to go back and redo a bunch of it. So if I had done it right, better job the first time, there would have been mistakes, but it would have started off stronger. Sure. Uh, also, when I started, I was kind of led to believe that I had to buy a an Amazon specific theme, and while that it, that it was going to make a big difference, and while they're nice and they have some pros, but it turned out that just starting starting with a simple platform that looked good and helped present my content in a good way and gave a good impression to people, I would have been better off with that than having to go back again later and fix everything up, revamp everything again. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. And understand, <clears throat> especially the theme's a little tough, and, and actually I'm, I'm going back and revising that portion of the course, Marty, um, partially okay. from feedback from you, but just in general as I'm moving, um, learning more about more things themes. I'm not a theme person myself. I just, and I think that's part of like why, you know, I maybe made a recommendation or two for a couple specific themes because people really, you know, like some of the functionality, but at the same time, it's like, if you could just get something that looks good enough and you could put your time in content, you know, really focusing on the content. So, and just to quickly summarize, so you mentioned, um, high quality content up front. Um, and then additionally, probably the biggest thing is like, you're going to have some down days. Your motivation is going to waver. Yeah. You're going to think, yeah. unfortunately, you're, you're going to think, why are these other people doing better? I should be able to do yes. that. Right. Um, but you can only compare yourself to like you a week ago versus yeah. like anyone else. So, Absolutely agree. I've, I've heard that said before and it's true. Um, yeah, don't. We're guilty sometimes of being our own worst critics. Critics, and uh, we just have to be able to wake up in the morning saying that we gave our best effort, and whatever we did, whatever's not right, we'll we'll figure it out later. We'll learn. We'll fix it. We'll get better. You know, it, it's uh, one thing I've learned that it seems to be critical in general about trying to make money online. I, even though I realize I'm a relative beginner, is that my mindset has changed a lot. Uh, what I didn't understand was we live in a world where we tend to think and we're sort of we almost grow up here in the United States thinking, well, if it didn't work the first time, well, I guess it's just not going to work and I shouldn't be doing that. But that's but the truth is things aren't going to be easy. You're going to do make mistakes and the way being successful means saying, OK, well, if this isn't working and I did something wrong, well, then I'll try something else because other people obviously can do it. And if that's true, you can too. You right. just have to accept that. Uh, you just have to keep going, basically. Um, you know, you have to have everybody's going to have those moments. I've, you know, even just two months ago, I, for some weird w- reason, one afternoon, I was just thinking, man, I just, I just don't feel like, <laughs> I don't feel so great about this. You know, you get these feel, these strange feelings like, wow, I could, you know, I could just stop and it'd be a whole lot easier. But then I, I said, no, that's the old way of thinking. That's a f- failure mindset. And that's not how I, that's not what I want. Uh, I, I have my dreams and my goals and I have a hunger for it. As Tony Robbins says, the hunger is what 
drives people to succeed and go beyond their their original expectations and achieve great things. So I knew what I wanted, and I said, do I want it badly enough, yes or no? That simple, yes. Just keep going, keep learning. And that's one reason I joined your course was because, you know, I heard great things about you, and you have legitimate information, which unfortunately can be hard to find these days. There's so much noise out there. And and I forget who said it, but someone said that you need two things to succeed. You need a good blueprint, and you need to take action consistently. And I believe the five-figure niche site course is a great blueprint, and it works, and it's legit, and there's no smoke and mirrors. There's no tricks. It's just good, good old-fashioned, you know, good good old-fashioned guidelines, and here's what you do, and, you know, and here's how things work, and this will help you. Nice. Appreciate you saying that. Um, Pleasure. And as we're, let's get into some more tactical stuff. People really enjoy that. So we'll hit a few areas, keyword research and just reviewing keywords. Do you have any specific tips to to give or any insights that you learned over the past, you know, year or so? Yeah, I think at this point, um, I, I've changed the, tools I use, but that's not necessarily always uh, a critical thing. The the biggest thing is I keep, uh, I have several small ideas. So for example, if I'm out and about, I might be either in a restaurant or a store and I might get an, I might see an object that's somewhat related to my niche and I'll write it down and I'll keep it in the back of my mind. And later I'll put it in my keyword tool and start seeing what pops out. Uh, also, I've gotten more and more thorough about uh, evaluating keywords. Uh, so I get a huge list, the biggest I can within reason, within the, the guidelines that you teach people. Uh, and then I sort through those. And if those don't always work out, so usually I'll find something related to those, and that, that'll spur off a whole other list of keywords. Also, uh, I try to keep focused in not worrying so much about, hey, is this – high number of average searches per month, even if it's a very small number, I've learned that it's a lot of those are still good, especially mm-hmm. if they're low competition. Right. Uh, because later on, some of my posts that were based on these with tiny numbers, they ranked for other keywords as well and they did well. So don't, don't think that something's too small, you know, it's low hanging fruit, as we say, yes. <laughs> That's, it still has value. Yeah. Cool. And what, what tools do you use if you want to mention them? Yes. Uh, I've progressed through several over time, but now I'm using mainly Ahrefs. Uh, but I do still use SEMrush occasionally, and I may also go back to using both of them at the same time. So okay. I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. That's helped me. And like, do you feel like one of them has a more accurate keyword search volume, or do you just not really care about the search volume so much? Um, I know that they're both supposed to be pretty good according to industry people who actually test them in articles I've read. Uh, supposedly Ahrefs is, is slightly better, but you know, there, nobody really knows for hundred percent. Right. Uh, but I, I feel pretty confident about either one of those two tools. Yeah. Sure. You know, and I used to think, uh, some rush was a little bit further off, but when I started looking at more of the, of the documentation for any of the tools, they'll usually tell you like the number of months that they average out. Right. So depending on like 
whether it's like 12 months or 30 months or whether it's a, a growing trend or a declining trend, <clears throat> yeah. like it could look a little bit different, but exactly. as long as, like you said, it doesn't, the search volume doesn't matter as much as like identifying like a need there. And if it's a low search volume, it can still be just fine. So, yeah. Uh, one quick note about uh, keywords. I've always got to be careful to, instead of rushing in and, putting a lot of time into good content about a specific keyword, I need to check the competition and say, you know, it needs to pass a test. You need to be, which you show people how to, to do that in your course. Of course, that's, that's very important because when you're starting off and you're a beginner, wow, it's very discouraging if you never rank well for something is if you fail to check it, right you now that's, that's part of it. you got to look at the big picture. Correct. For sure. Now moving on to content. Okay. You said that you, you know, you realize your content wasn't like as good as you can do. So yes. do you have any tips on content or like improving or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, cause I've gotten a lot of comments about mine and I'm really happy to say, <laughs> happy to say that people, both readers and people who I know that know my site, uh, they like it. I, I, at this point I'll say, uh, my first mistake was when I could, felt like I couldn't write long enough content in the beginning, I went about it the wrong way. So what I figured out was, Instead of just saying this is the best product and some some details, I also now I'll add value by putting in more about how that kind of product works, the pros and cons of it, uh, a lot of helpful information because not everybody knows the stuff when they, when they find your site and your post. It, it, it is legitimate. It's not just uh, I'm not not just putting in some some fluff, mm-hmm. putting in something that actually contributes, and then I go on to. I uh, did the, the pros and cons of my buyer keyword, the product information, what have you. Uh, also, there are some really good free resources. What I like to do now was I, I've learned that uh, in some cases, infographics can help contribute to really good content as well. And you can do a lot of that for free in Canva. And uh, they look really sharp. Uh, also, I use Google Drawings, which is free for some of my diagrams when it's technical information to help give really good, clear diagrams that help people to understand something, to do something themselves or to see how something works, things like that. Um, and there's tools out there also to check your grammar and things like that. Uh, my Yoast SEO plugin, it highlights some of the readability scoring. That's another thing that helps also. It helps keep me in line. And I, I've noticed that I've gotten better at writing content because if I see, if I check my work, I'll find mistakes and I'll learn from that and it keeps improving. It's a process, you know? Nice. Very good. Uh, And then you mentioned infographics, uh, in there. So do you create an infographic for like every piece of content or how do you, how do you decide? Uh, not every piece. I try to do it, uh, where I feel like it's going to benefit it. For example, uh, of course, I have buyer keyword posts and info posts as well. Info posts, a lot of times I do use those if it's something where I can add some facts, uh, explain how the, some quick tips and things. Some is a way of summarizing it, presenting it, and it looks very professional. If it's a product where it's a buyer post, uh, people might want to know more about it and see some quick facts. I'll use one there if I think it's if, if I think it's uh, relevant and helpful. Cool. Yeah. And as far as link building, have you done much much link building for your site? Can you take us through uh, your process yeah, and stuff? I have done uh, – I did quite a bit of commenting, uh, uh, which 
I, I used what I would do was I would uh, following the steps in the course, I would make my big master spreadsheet and I would go through all the little the the websites that I we we were able to generate and I go through each one where I could. I would leave a comment. I used to get up in the morning early before work and do, say, 10 or 12 every day and go through that. That built up a lot. And then also um, I I've done a few real gas posts, but most I have bought some. But I tried I, – you have to be very careful with that kind of stuff. Um, I did only that to try to make the best use of my time because I was also trying to make more content because I write it myself. It's hard to juggle two things sometimes for me because I have a full-time job. So uh, I did do – I bought some. I did some the natural way and then the blog commenting as okay. well, yeah. About how many links <laughs> – would you say you have as far as the get or yeah, like the do follow guest post, not the blog comments? Okay, yeah, the do follow I think are fifteen to tw- I think it's fifteen to twenty. Uh, Great, probably. Uh, okay, yeah, okay. So pretty much like prescribed as in the course. So yes. uh, cool, very good. <clears throat> right, exactly. All right, and do you have any other like just sort of overall? tips um for people that are like hey i want to do what marty's done here um just in a a general sense to follow in your footsteps yeah i really do uh i I think one of the first things that i would tell people is uh you need to look at it from the perspective that it's not going to happen in just a few weeks it's a progressive thing and you it starts off very slowly and you really need to start off the right way put in the real effort and you have to be consistent every week. You need to be doing something and you need to understand that you just need to keep working on it and stay strong and get to the first point where you start getting traffic. And then once you do and you get that first sale, it's very rewarding and it'll build upon itself over time. You keep seeing it rise. You know, you just, just understand you need to be patient. Very good. Yeah. And I think, um, You know, the the further you go along, um, the more you realize you don't know anything, even though you're yep. like accumulating knowledge. So, like, I bet right now, Marty, you're like, oh man, I know so much more, so much more like real experience than last year. And now you're thinking, well, there's so much more I don't know that yes. I didn't even know was there, right? Absolutely. Uh, and that to add to my previous comment, you've got to be proactive and go learn stuff. You can't just sit up, sit in a chair and expect the information to fall into your lap. If you really want to get better and keep improving, you really need to go out there and use the resources that are free and they're out there sitting there, you know? Um, and yeah, what you just said is very true. I, when the more you learn, the more you learn, you don't know and that there's more, even more to learn, but it, you, you'll grow as a person and you'll, you even look back and say, wow, I, I used to do things so differently and I feel so much more confident now and I can go back and improve my mistakes and get even more efficient and do things, keep hitting, heading towards even bigger milestones, you know? Yep. And just another thing to add in there with the learning is like, you know, I've been doing this for about five years, so kind of a long time, but also not that long. Okay. I'm constantly trying to learn and Marty, I haven't mentioned it to you, but like when I'm in the say our Facebook group, right? I'm right. I'm like looking for information. Like everyone in the course is like someone I could learn from because you all have different experiences and different sources where you're getting information. So it's, I mean, I'm constantly trying to learn 
still because I know that I don't know everything. And as soon as I think that I don't need to learn anything, that's when I'm yep. in trouble. So it's very interesting. You know, just once yeah. you get some level of knowledge, you're like, well, I need to learn a lot more. So very interesting. So the success of the site, it sounds like it's on an upward trajectory. Like what's the impact on your life? Anything like specific and concrete? Yeah, it, it it's, it's like it, uh, I, I was already motivated, very driven to succeed. Uh, my, my dream is to be free one day and work for myself. That's my ultimate dream, freedom. Uh, but when this happened and I hit that, that, that goal, that milestone, it, it's like, it's like it's it's like something is saying this is not just possible, but you're definitely going to do it as long as you just keep going. It's like an affirmation. It's an affirmation and a reward at the same time. It's a as a person, you feel like um, you're it's kind of hard to describe, but as a person, it feels like you're you've got more wind behind you. It's going to be a little bit easier now. And I've even been told after you, you get to this point, it's going to be easier. Uh, you just keep going. Yeah. And your motivation is probably like rising and like, as yeah, you progress, you're like, I, I can do it. And like you're, you have the, the proof now, right? Like you thought you right. could do it, but now. Yes, absolutely. You, you have like the real results. Very exactly. Cool. It's exactly. I, I feel even more motivated to, to keep going and, and learning and improving and fixing everything I can and just, just keep working, keep doing what's working, stay focused and keep doing, doing what's working. Marty, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you spending some time with uh, us in the niche site project community today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Doug. It's, it's been a wonderful experience and I'm very happy to be here. Awesome. Thanks a lot to Marty. I really appreciate him taking the time out. And the cool thing is that I will be scheduling an update with him. So again, this interview that you just listened to was from about six months ago and more things have happened. So I want to catch up with Marty soon. So I'll be publishing that in the future. One thing that I want to point out is that Marty didn't leave any contact info and that was intentional. I uh, gave him a heads up and I just let him know, hey, have people uh, you know, catch you on live streams. Whenever I do a live stream, a lot of times Marty is actually in the chat room and stuff. Or you may see him commenting on some of the YouTube videos. Or if you are in the five-figure niche site course, he's fairly active within the Facebook group there which is good because me personally, I don't love Facebook. I kind of hate it. So I don't spend too much time there. So good people like Marty and some other folks within the course, they step up and they provide that community aspect. Beer, let's talk about it. So if you've been around uh, my brand a little bit in the Chai Project or you've seen some YouTube videos, you probably have seen me reference beer a lot, and that's because I love beer. In fact, I like uh, most all alcoholic beverages. I enjoy wine. I enjoy spirits. A lot of times, I'll you know I'll opt for a beer if that if if I'm given the choice, I'm usually going to go for a beer, and then uh, like my second choice would be some kind of whiskey. Now, like all sorts of whiskeys, but beer first, then whiskey, wine if the you know, occasion is right. If it matches the food or the people that I'm with really enjoy wine, wine may be the uh, beverage of choice. So why beer? How did I get into beer? Well, if we rewind back 
to my much younger days when I had like a full head of hair and um, a day job, I drank Coors Light or Bud Light most often. And if I drank liquor, I basically would do shots of something like vodka or something like that. I should also mention sort of the rough years and the timeline. So I guess basically anywhere up until about 2006, I was drinking Coors Light. And and actually, let me defend those domestic light beers just for a moment. So even now where I am, I guess many people would consider me a beer snob, I think there's still a place for like a domestic light lager or something like the Coors Light or Bud Light tailgating, for example, or maybe you're uh, fishing or floating down the river or doing something like that. Um, or maybe you're at a cabin with some friends or something like that and you're hanging out and maybe you want to have a beverage, but you don't want to have like a double IPA to drink all day. Maybe you just want a Coors Light because it's almost water, right? Anyway, the point is uh, 2006 or so, anytime before that, Coors Light was kind of my go-to. In fact, if you rewind back and, uh, well, if I rewind back and I think about traveling out to the Rockies, traveling out to Colorado for the first few um, times, I actually made it a point to go to the Coors Brewery in Golden. So it's pretty cool. And I enjoy, well, I enjoy all that stuff. The mountains, the, you know, the cool uh, mountain water, the snow melt, all that kind of stuff. So I enjoyed just the idea of Coors Light. Anyway, fast forward to 2007. I was working that corporate job. In fact, it was uh, consulting. So the way the schedule worked, a lot of my friends, we, we worked out of town for most of the week. So we'd fly out on Monday, we'd come back on Thursday evening, and on Friday, we would sometimes go to like the home office for maybe like half a day, or sometimes we would work from home uh, if we had maybe like client conference calls or meetings or something like that. And then a lot of times we would like take like Friday afternoon off and just be available via email because during the week, I mean, we worked a lot of hours. So Friday, a lot of times it was a little bit of a slower day. The reason why I'm telling you that is some of my, my friends and I, we would get together on like Friday afternoon, maybe play a round of uh, golf when we drank beer, Coors Light at the time, or we would do some other activity, maybe go for a hike or something like that. My friend, a few years before that, maybe like 2005, he got a beer brewing kit from his parents. And it was just sort of like one of the standard kits. Maybe it cost about 100 bucks, And it sat in his closet for a couple years. Well, I had a house at the time. And my other buddies, they, they had apartments. And they also were married. So they had... Uh, a little bit more, uh, they had more restrictions about brewing in the house because it can make a mess and we didn't know what we were doing. So by default, because I had the extra freedom, we brewed at my place. And I actually have um, a video, I need to go back and find it, but I have a video of the first time we brewed. My uh, brother-in-law, Sam, he actually joined us um, because he had brewed a couple times with uh, some of his friends or roommates or something in college. So we invited him over to sort of show us what to do. It was a complete shit show. Um, we made all sorts of mistakes, but we really loved the process. And um, again, that was back in, I think like February of 2007, something like that. 
And um, we love the process so much that we brewed like a couple more batches of beer before the first batch was even ready to drink. That's important because we actually, um, the beer wasn't that good. I'll be honest with you. The first few batches of beer, they were not good at all. And again, we love the process. So we went ahead and brewed more beer before the first batch was ready to know that it didn't taste good. And we had a few more batches in the queue ready to drink. And cool thing is my friends, we all still brew. Like uh, I think there were two of my other friends, plus my uh, brother-in-law, Sam, we all still brew. Now, some, some of us brew more often than others, and some of us got into it a little bit more. It was me. I was the person who got into it the most. Some of the first few batches of beer that we brewed, we entered into the Sam Adams long shot homebrew competition, which anyone can enter. I think it was, I think it's free to enter. You just have to send in your entry. And if your beer wins, then Sam Adams will like brew the beer um, and distribute it across the nation. Funny fact, uh, someone from my first homebrew club back in Atlanta won. So right when I was getting involved in like homebrew, a person I knew that would, I would hang out with him and uh, drink beers with him. He actually won and his beer was distributed somewhere in like 2010, something like that. So in that time frame. Anyway, the point is we entered a few of those beers and they were not very good. However, I was very intrigued with the process of like brewing the beer, entering it, getting feedback and having to adapt and, and do better. So after a couple competitions that I entered on my own, I wanted to get better. And one of the recommendations when I talked to more experienced brewers and judges and stuff, they were like, hey, you should become a beer judge and then you'll understand what the judges are ranking. So I really dove in head first into the beer judging. So over the period of, I think it was like, I can't remember, maybe I got my uh, beer judge certification program credentials in like 2009. I think that sounds right. So back in 2009, I took the test, which is a, a very difficult test. And I started judging a bunch. So I started judging all the time. And back in the day, I was doing maybe like four or five competitions a year. And I would spend, you know, something like 12 or 16 hours over the course of a weekend, judging beer, hanging out with other beer judges, talking about beer, drinking beer. And it was all very educational and fun. I mean, after all, you're literally drinking beer. Now, the, the tough part is sometimes you had to wake up really early and uh, start judging beer at like nine in the morning or something. So that was a little, you, know, you have to adjust, but you can judge a beer just drinking like one to two ounces of it, something like that. And, you know, once you get used to it, you could judge really quick and you don't have to drink that much of it. So you got to keep it under control, of course. I even got so into the judging that I ended up teaching other people how to judge. So I guess I sort of progressed in the BJCP, the Beer Judge Certification Program, far enough where I could uh, grade exams. Now, think about this. This is a beer judging test, and it sounds like it should be easy, right? You just drink some beer. However, it's uh, fairly complicated. You 
have a lot of different beer styles and it's not just, hey, is this good or not? It's very specific. You look at the appearance, you look at the aroma, I guess you look at the appearance and you smell the aroma, you taste the flavor, you talk about the mouthfeel, and then you're you're judging it against a specific criteria for the style. So again, it's not just, hey, is this beer good or not? You're actually judging it against a, a fixed style. So if you think about, I guess, one of the good analogies that maybe some people are familiar with is like dog breeds. So you have, uh, uh, what is it, the Westminster Dog Show, and they judge a dog against how the breed is supposed to look. Now, I'm not a huge fan of that. I have a border collie, and they're they're bred for their intelligence, not uh, how they look exactly, but that's another story for another day. Anyway, the point is when you're judging beer, it's uh, a very an academic sort of process. And further, you may have a very good and excellent, delicious beer that you love to drink. However, if it doesn't fit the proper style that the person entered it into, well, it's not going to score as well because it's not what it was intended to be. For example, let's say you brew a stout and it's a, it's a dark beer or something like a Guinness, right? But you entered it into the pale ale category. Those are very different beers. (laughs) So you could, you could imagine if you, if you were expecting to get a pale ale and you ended up with a stout, even if it was an excellent stout, That is not a good example of a pale ale, hence it wouldn't do that well in competition. So that's how I got started into being a beer geek and a beer judge. And at this point, most of my friends are somehow uh, either home brewers, they work at breweries, they're associated with the uh, alcohol industry or something like that. And it turns out, Uh, That works out pretty well for me because if I like to drink beer, I'm probably not going to hang out with um, people that don't like to drink beer. I'll hang out with some people, right? But if if we're like, hey, you want to, you know, grab a beer after work or something like that? Well, if you're not drinking beer, it's not as much fun. So I'll leave it at that. I got a million stories about beer and uh, I'm sure in future episodes, I'll talk more about it. Let's get to the three questions for today. The first question is, what is the best, the very best WordPress theme for affiliate sites? Now, this one is a little bit, uh, it's a little tough to answer, but I'll just tell you straight up at first, and then I'll give you all the details around it. So it really doesn't matter. You can use basically whatever theme you want to use. If you hear someone telling you that you have to use a specific theme because whatever reason they fill in there, whatever great features or formatting or whatever, they're usually an affiliate for that theme. So their incentives and their priorities are much different than yours. They're making a recommendation so that they get a commission. Now, I'm not above that. I'm not above making a recommendation. So at some point in this conversation here, we are going to talk about some themes that I would recommend, and I am indeed affiliates for them. But I will tell you straight up, you can use whatever theme you want, and it will probably be fine. The main thing for me is I want the theme to stay out of my way and load fairly fast. 
I want the site to look clean and I want it to be easy to read. I want to communicate. I don't care if there are boxes or little check marks instead of a, you know, an unordered list, a little bullet point. It doesn't really matter that much. The other portion of it is I don't want to struggle with the settings on the theme. When you get a new theme, it's usually a little complicated. There are options, there are decisions to be made. And if you're starting a new site, you don't want to waste your time trying to figure out the settings. And I can tell you it's very frustrating and you're trying to do a good job. You're trying to make your site look presentable. You want it to look perfect even, which is almost impossible to do. The point is the fewer options, the better. Now, let me give you an example. I know some people may be thinking, hey, I I see many sites out there and I see the ones that look formatted nice and I'm more impressed with those. My argument is that's not really necessary as long as you could communicate clearly. So if you look at a site like medium.com, you'll notice that it's just black text on a white background. That's it. it. It's just clean and it's plain and they let the content speak for itself. That's what I want to do. Now, generally, I just tell people the theme doesn't matter that much as long as it looks okay, as long as it looks good enough. So it doesn't have to look perfect. It doesn't need to be a custom design or anything like that. You do want it to load fast. There are some themes that are just big and bloated and they load slow. They're usually part of like a front end editor or maybe there's a front end editor that allows you to uh, like build uh, like a page builder, I think they're called. And they have a lot of options. Now, not all of them are bad and you could use them sort of incorrectly so it's more bloated, but generally a theme that does have the front end editor, not always, but often it will load slower than a theme that is just simpler. And the third point is you want the theme to be simple enough to use so that you're not like wasting time trying to figure out how to use it. Quick example, I used to use a theme, I won't mention it specifically here, but I used to use a theme that had all this rich formatting and I spent a lot of time taking advantage of all that rich formatting. And it took a long time just to post a very simple like blog post because of, you know, this, this rich formatting. So it's like boxes, maybe there's buttons, little things like that. It, it didn't, I mean, those little things are noticeable. However, it really didn't do anything. It didn't help anything at all other than it made me upset because it took a long time to post something that should have been faster. So anyway, those are the three things. I want the site to look okay. It should load fast and I don't want it to be too complicated. That's the main thing. Let's talk about some themes that you can actually use and we'll be specific about it this time. So number one, I will point out free themes. Most people, especially when they're getting started, you are limited in your budget or at least you may be hesitant to invest if you're not sure if this stuff is going to work. Now, I hope you have a little more faith now that you've listened to Marty's interview and there's some more uh, success stories coming up here. But basically, if you're afraid to invest yet or your budget's just low, that is okay. My number one recommendation is to use a theme that you already own. 
if you happen to own one already. So perhaps you've dabbled with WordPress a little bit, and I know that it is fun to buy new themes and uh, you know check them out, play around with them, use those options that seem so cool. But generally, it's better if you don't waste time shopping for the next shiny object, whether it's a theme or a new plugin or whatever. So the point is, if you already own the theme, you probably have a little experience using it. And if you keep using it, you will become more effective, hopefully more efficient and work with it faster. And usually I just stick with like two or three themes that I have used over and over again over the last few years. For example, on Niche Site Project, when I first started, I started using a theme called Thesis. It was recommended or at least used by Pat Flynn of Smart Passive Income. So that's how I honed in on it. And then as I looked at it, I was like, oh, this seems fine. So I I bought that theme and I've used it on niche site projects since the beginning. I've thought about changing themes, but you know that could be a little bit of a headache. So I've just uh, basically taken thesis, I've used it, and I've simplified how I'm using it on niche site project currently. So I used to use more options from Thesis, but now I use less of them and it's simpler. I think the site looks better. So if you already have a theme, we'll go over pros and cons for each of the recommendations, by the way. So the pros, obviously, if you already own a theme, it's kind of free because you've already invested um, the money into it. Now, of course, there are some themes out there that do require like a monthly Uh, fee or maybe an annual renewal if you want to get support. So that is a cost, but generally it's already paid for at least in some way. The other pro is you already know how to use it, or at least partially. You do have access to the support team. Usually, again, if you're paying that monthly or annual fee to get access to support and the cons are potentially that the design may not be optimal. That is usually subjective anyway. And another one to mention is it could be a little bit boring or less exciting because new themes can be fun. I mean, I know when I've shopped around for themes, it's kind of exciting. I'm thinking, hey, this is going to look great. And then once you install it, maybe it looks great for a little while, but the reality is it's easier just to work with something that you already know. All right, another recommendation aside from themes that you already own, perhaps you're just getting started. You own no themes. You haven't used any. You don't have any premium themes yet. You can use the WordPress themes. Now, these come installed by default whenever you install WordPress. They are simple. They are clean themes, and they are free. They are very straightforward to use, and it's pretty much vanilla sort of implementation, a vanilla looking theme. However, they communicate well, right? They are clean and they look good. WordPress puts out uh, new themes each year and you can use any of the previous themes from previous years. The We'll go into the pros and cons now. So of course it's free, that is a pro. It's secure, it's put out by WordPress, so they're going to be sort of on the front end of any sort of security issues or anything like that. They are simple, uh, almost to a fault. That is going to be a con too. So they are they are quite simple, and in general, they're always going to be up to date or at least again on the cutting edge because WordPress owns those themes. They maintain those themes. Cons for using a WordPress theme: lack of features. So as I mentioned, it is simple. It is a 
plain vanilla situation here and there's not many features. So typically there's just like a template for a post and a template for a page and there's not much else going on. Now you can create other templates if you want. For example, you want something uh, with no sidebar, you want like a very narrow page or a very wide page. You can you can get um, someone, you can get a developer to create those templates for you. Or if you were adventurous and you wanted to get into a little bit of coding, it's probably fairly straightforward to do it if you have the skills. I don't have those skills, low interest in doing it. So if I actually like went this route, I would probably hire a developer to work on a couple of uh, custom templates based on my spec specifications. Now, the other con is like no premium support unless you pay for it. So you can go to different forums and different places to get some support for such free WordPress themes. But if you actually want support and someone to like work through it with you, you would have to um, pay someone to help. I'm not 100% sure the mechanism in place uh, for that, but I imagine somewhere within WordPress or automatic, someone would take your money if, if uh, they helped you. So no premium support. The next set of themes we'll talk about is automatic themes. So automatic, and that's spelled A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C. So there's two T's at the end, automatic is the parent company of WordPress, and they produce themes that are a little bit more interesting than the default WordPress themes that come out annually. And they have a lot of themes out there. I think something like over 100 the last time that, they, that I looked. Some of them are paid, but a lot of them are free. Now, as I mentioned, they're a little more interesting. They have more options typically than the standard WordPress theme. A lot of them, I mean, there's over 100, a lot of them have like a particular focus. So some of them may be focused on like a portfolio for an artist. Others may be more like a magazine type theme. Some of them may be oriented towards blogging or something like that. So there's a focus for some of them. Not all 100 would be a great option, but in general, you should be able to find a few dozen at least that are like great fits for an affiliate type site. They probably don't have anything specific built in for like affiliate marketing, but in in most cases, you just want to get the content out there in a clean, clean way. You want to communicate clearly. So in general, you have the same pros and cons as the default WordPress themes. Pros, these are going to be free, secure, simple, always up to date. The caveat is some of them are going to be paid, but a lot of them are free. As far as the cons, there may be a lack of features. You may not have as many templates for posts or pages. And support may be a little bit different uh, as far as who you can go to for support. You may have to rely on forums and just other experts within the WordPress ecosystem. There's a lot of ways to do that, but in general, you're not going to be able to like email someone and get a response like you would for some premium themes. Next, we will talk about those paid premium themes. So in general, you're going to spend somewhere between like $30 and $100 for a theme, and some companies do have subscription models. So that can add up over time, but it can be totally worth it if the company provides updates and reliable support. 
I will caution you to make sure the support is good. I have paid for a few themes and the support sucked. I was really disappointed and I talked bad about the company basically. And it was one of those situations where like I needed help. I filled out a, you know, a ticket, which was a forum for this particular company. And we'll mention it here. And, um, it took like four days for them to even tell me that they needed more time to look at it. And guess what? There was a huge queue of questions out there in the forum. And the terrible part is it's one of those companies that you have to pay for like a subscription for support and that sort of thing. And they have many thousands and thousands of customers and they are highly marketed. So it's a little disappointing that they're not investing money in support. And anyway, I will get off the soapbox here and I will list out a couple themes that are known to work very well for Amazon affiliate sites. So number one is Rehub. And this is a theme that uh, Marty actually told me about and other five-figure niche site students. They also mentioned it to me. It's oriented for and directly to uh, like affiliate marketers and it has features to help improve conversions. On the details page for the Rehub theme, they say it's the first theme that was recommended by the Amazon Associate Program, which is really cool. I actually went to check it out and um, indeed, Rehub is mentioned in the Amazon Associate Program as a potential theme to use. So once I saw that and on top of the fact that it was recommended by smart people I know like Marty, I checked it out and I've, I've used Rehub and it's a really good theme. It has a lot of features, a whole lot of features, uh, many of which I don't use, but it it has like the core things that you need and it is very versatile to uh, let you expand. So if you did want to take advantage of some of those affiliate marketing tools that they offer, you could, but you don't have to. And that was another thing. I, I wanted to test out Rehub personally before I would recommend it. And yeah, you could totally implement it in a simple way and then add complexity later if you want to, you don't have to. Next theme I will recommend is X theme. And a few students of Five Figure Niche Site told me about it too. It looks great. It has a lot of options, kind of like rehab and a lot of versatility, but a simple implementation is possible. And it comes with uh, sort of access to other plugins by the parent company. I think it's called ThemeCo. So they have a lot of different demos and they can sort of get you started and you can see what's possible when using X theme. So those are, are two that I can recommend uh, specifically. There are dozens of others. So I, I can't even, you know, get into all, all the themes that would work fine, but those are two to get started with. Last thing I'll mention is premium themes that are made specifically for Amazon affiliate sites. So there are a few out there and the main thing that they can do is connect directly with the Amazon advertising API. So you can look up products within the theme. You could add affiliate links using the WordPress editor and you can insert images from Amazon as well. Now, one of the other things that you can pull from the Amazon advertising API is the the product prices. So you're not supposed to list the prices on your affiliate site. It violates the operating agreement between you and Amazon Associates. So you can't list the prices unless 
the prices are current and accurate. That is the thing that Amazon worries about. So they want to make sure that the customer has a good experience. So they want to make sure the price is accurate. The only way to make sure the price is accurate is to pull it via the API. That is the value of having such a tool. Now, I like the idea of the themes that integrate with the Amazon API, but usually they have a learning curve and there's a little extra setup. Not always uh, worth the extra effort. But what I'll tell you right now is there's no themes that I recommend that are integrated with the uh, advertising API. There are some plugins that I can recommend in some future time. But uh, basically, these sort of themes, the pros would be you have access to the Amazon API. A lot of times you can create tables. A lot of times they look great out of the box. And the cons would be potentially a site that's a little bit harder to set up, a little bit of a learning curve. The other danger is a lot of people may have a site that looks exactly like yours. In fact, I noticed this as I was just researching other sites out there and I started to run across the same themes over and over and over again. And at some point, it just looks sort of, uh, I don't know, it looks generic because there's so many sites that look like it. And I, now that I'm saying that out loud, I realize, hey, the plain vanilla site that I'm describing that has a white background and black text, yes, that probably also looks very similar. But it, at the very least, that is a, I would say, like a classic look. And that's probably why websites like Medium have their design like that. Next question is around the keyword golden ratio. What is the keyword golden ratio? The KGR, as we'll call it, is a research, a keyword research concept that I developed after combining ideas from many smart people. So the concept is simple, but I made the formula accessible by making it simple and nearly foolproof. So if you want to learn a little bit more, you want to get access to my personal KGR calculator, which is a spreadsheet, then uh, you can go to nichesiteproject.com and uh, sign up for the email list there. In general, this is how the formula works. This is the data-driven way to find keywords that are underserved on the internet. So the keyword golden ratio should be less than 0.25. The way you calculate it goes like this. The number of Google search results that have the keyword phrase in the title divided by the local monthly search volume, where the local monthly search volume is less than 250. By the way, this is all based on using the U.S. as the locality. If you are using a different Google version like .ca or .uk or .de or whatever, the numbers may change, but you could use these ideas to find keywords. Now, here's the deal. If the KGR is less than 0.25, then you should be able to rank in the top 100 when your page is indexed. All right, so as soon as you publish it and and you get the page indexed, you should be ranking in the top 100. If you are not, um, that's another story for another day, but typically it means there's some sort of on-site issue. Not always, but usually there's some sort of on-site SEO mistake that was made. So further, you should be able to rank in the top 250 when the KGR is between 0.25 and 1, and it should rank pretty fast as well. Now, when the ratio is over one, when the KGR is over one, then you know it's a more competitive term, even if the search volume is quite low. The ratio 
is the way that you can get fast results and skip the Google sandbox. And it's very important to look for the keyword golden ratio when you're first starting your site. If you want to learn more, a friend of mine uh, and myself, uh, so my friend is Alex Cooper from WP Eagle on YouTube. He and I put together a masterclass, a free masterclass on YouTube. And I'll put a link in the uh, show notes and stuff, but it's basically, I don't know, I think it's like two hours or an hour and a half to two hours of training. There are, I think, 11 videos total. We go over the basic concepts and introduction to the KGR. We go over some success stories and I demo the spreadsheet that I mentioned a minute ago. We talk about finding keywords and show you how to find keywords using a tool called Keywords Everywhere, which is free. We also go into the keyword golden ratio and using SEMrush to aid the process. We look at answer the public as well. We go deeper and look at why I created the formula the way I did, like why 250 is part of the formula and why you need to make sure the search volume isn't too high. We also talk about how long the affiliate content should be. We look at the best keyword golden ratio format, keywords you should avoid, and I go over a case study. So if you are interested in learning more about the keyword golden ratio, do check out the masterclass. Again, it is free. It is 100% free. And I'm going to be publishing uh, at least two episodes on the KGR coming up soon. I'm not sure when I'm going to publish them, but I do have a couple episodes in the queue and I go more in depth for the keyword golden ratio as well. All right, here's the last question for today. How often should I post content for my niche site? Here is the truth. It really doesn't matter. I publish basically as fast as I can. People ask this question because there was a time, a long time ago, maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, when Google cared how often you published on your site. And if you published on a regular basis, then Google, it seemed to, or at least the word on the street from what I've heard is, if you published on a regular basis, then you would rank better. Now, again, this was like 10 years ago and Google is much smarter now. And if you could just publish content on a regular basis and rank higher, then everyone would do it. Now, there are some valuable things uh, publishing on a schedule. People uh, get into a habit from a content production standpoint. So you may be able to stick to a schedule and maybe that helps you in some way. But for me, I'd rather just publish everything as fast as I can. Personally, I like to work in sprints of work to be redundant. So a lot of times I'll get some goal in my head, say I want to publish 50 posts and I'll hire some writers to help create that content and I'll get it done as quickly as I possibly can and I will publish everything as quickly as I can. The alternative would be publish the 50 articles one per week for a year, but I find it more valuable to publish everything at once and then they can all start ranking, they can all start getting traffic versus holding off and waiting to publish it. In my opinion, there's no real value in it. So when people ask me how often should I publish, it doesn't matter. You can publish however often you want to, whatever works for your schedule, whatever works for your budget, whatever you want to try. In fact, um, when I first launched a site and anyone who goes through the Five Figure Niche Site course, 
I tell them, hey, just publish 10 posts uh, to get started and then you can come and add more later. You can publish all 10 posts on the first day if you want. It really doesn't matter. The point is you get it out there and then you can add more content later. So if you want to publish on a regular schedule, you can, but I would advise you to get your content published as quickly as possible. And if it once a week is as fast as you could do it, then do that. If you can do it much faster, then get it done faster. The sooner you can get traffic to your site, the better. Thanks for listening to The Doug Show. Go to doug.show for notes and to sign up for the email list. I want to thank Marty again for joining me and talking about his experience. Congrats on the success and be sure to look out for the updated interview with Marty sometime soon. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and leave a review. I would love it if you left a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever. Tell your friends about it. Tell your enemies about it, whatever. I would love to get the word out and I really appreciate your support. If you do have feedback, shoot me an email at feedback at doug.show. Feedback at doug.show. And we'll catch you in episode three. We'll see you later.